I want to take this opportunity to say thank you to Jeremy as he continues to faithfully lead and prepare all the musical worship for us and media responsibilities. He stands here today by himself, but we are all alongside him. Can we give him thanks? If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the book of 2 Samuel. Today we're going to continue our study by beginning chapter 16. This is God's word. May we hear it and receive it as such. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, a hundred bunches of raisins, a hundred of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? And Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. When King David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men who were on his right and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. Yahweh has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned and Yahweh has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you? you sons of Zeruiah. If he is cursing because Yahweh has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse for Yahweh has told him to. It may be that Yahweh will look on the wrong done to me and that the Yahweh will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan and there he refreshed himself. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, as we are gathered here in this space, 
we do so for one ultimate purpose, and that is to praise you. Lord, you have called us and commanded us to praise you, to sing songs to you, to glory in your goodness, to be awed by your wisdom and power. And Father, we do so this morning. We also confess that we come here not as perfectly rested as we could. We come with a life filled with distractions and sounds and other voices. And so we ask, Lord, that you would pierce through the noise, that you would tune down the sounds of the world, and that you would turn up the volume and tenderness of your merciful voice upon us. Lord, may we see clearly, judge rightly, and enjoy you all the more. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things, and all God's people agree. Seems like a pretty innocuous story we have before us this morning, right? David has two encounters with people, one who appears to be supporting him and the other, of course, reviling him in open and unapologetic ways. But we also have to come remembering that David is no ordinary person. David isn't just anybody. David is Yahweh's chosen and anointed king. We are watching his son usurp the throne. We are watching a seditious rebellion unfold whereby the king's son is seizing power that doesn't belong to him. And in conflicts like this, it creates incredible opportunities. And we're going to see a pair of opportunities this morning. But we must remember that to rebel against David's kingship is to rebel against Yahweh and Yahweh's kingdom. So certainly we must examine David as an individual, and I hope that we have done so well, exposing his grievous sins examining his heart, his motives, and his choices. But we must also remember to view David through the lens of his office, not just his character, not just his actions, but as God's chosen representative to carry out the office of king. David is Yahweh's covenant king. Rebellion against David is rebellion against Yahweh. But that rebellion takes many forms. Just as our sin can take many forms, so too can the rebellion fought against David. So there's a little literary structure to the last chapter and this chapter that can easily be overlooked. At the end of 2 Samuel chapter 15, David is presented three interactions with three friends, Ittai, Zadok, and Hushai. But in chapter 16, we will also see three encounters that David has, but these three are not friendship. They are the work of enemies of David. 
We saw three friends, and now we see three enemies. We shall see Zeba, Shimei, and Ahithophel, and they are enemies of David, which means they are enemies of the crown of Israel. But these enemies will function differently. Just as our sin is different, so too their rebellion is different. The two that we will look at today is Zeba and Shimei, and we will see behind the back rebellion, and we will see to your face rebellion. The first is subtle and difficult to see. The second is simple and obvious to see. Ziba, in this text, appears to be a friend of David. Let's examine that thought. Verse 1, when David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him. And he meets him with a couple of donkeys saddled, and he's bearing 200 loaves of breath and 100 bunches of raisins, a hundred of summer fruits, and even for the faint and weary, a wineskin. Now certainly, these are not enough provisions to keep David and his crew cared for for very long. This is not appetizers for all. This is additional aid, or what appears to be additional aid. So why do I call Ziba an enemy of David's? He seems to be presenting goods. He's thought about what David and his crew, as they move to exile, will require. So he seeks to bring about aid to their most significant needs. Food rations. And he even donates a couple of luxury transportations. He, he gets some donkeys for the women. This is a gift. But it is not a gift given in friendship. It's not a gift given in love or even service. Why call Ziba David's enemy? Because he's a liar. And because he's a manipulative liar. Ziba is only after his own interests. He does not care who is in charge of Israel as long as he can take advantage of those conflicts to line his own pockets. David will fall victim to his manipulations. But make no mistake, just as a drug pusher will offer you the first dose free, the rest come with a price. It's not generosity that motivates the drug dealer. It's selfish gain, regardless of consequences that ripple. In other words, it is greed that drives Ziba. David is going to trust Ziba He's going to believe his lie, and he's going to fall for Ziba's manipulations. 
And he does so out of an impulsive snap judgment. Let's take a look. The king speaks to Ziba on the presentation of these gifts. Why have you brought these? And Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. This is the luxury transportation. Take my cars. The bread and the summer fruit are for the young. Everybody who knows anything about bringing toddlers with you and children alongside you, you better pack snacks. Right, mom? So there's also an understanding that some of you in this caravan will be weary. Weary of the sun, not healthy going into the journey. So here's some wine that does two benefits. One, it anesthetizes the anxiousness. And two, it's quick sugar. Quick sugar for your body to burn and be fueled by. So if you're faint, here. It does not help you with hydration. This is why anybody who has drunk too much or has friends who drank too much knows the importance of some aspirin or Tylenol to go with a big cup of water in the morning. Ziba is greedy. He wants to take this opportunity to advance his own interests. So he gives to David what David wants in exchange for favor. He wants David to think highly of him. And so the king speaks back and asks Ziba, hey, if you're here, where's your master? Remember, Ziba was a head aide for Saul. And David, in having mercy to the covenant he made with Jonathan, doesn't wipe out Mephibosheth. He honors him, brings him to the king's table, and tells Ziba that all that belonged to Saul now belongs to Mephibosheth. We've seen this before. But David is going to make a snap judgment based on Ziba's answer. Where's your master's son? Well, Ziba's going to say, behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Does that mark anybody in here as strange? Remember, Mephibosheth was crippled at five years old. He's not going to rule on the throne of his father. His whole life is going to be filled with shame for his inability, fame, shame for his crippled status. So does this sound like the words of a cripple who's grateful for the love that David has for his father? The love that David has for him, the grace and mercy that he's shown? David loves Mephibosheth. So should he expect Mephibosheth to be filled with vile jealousy that would lead him at the first opportunity to be grateful for David's exile? If David was patient and had lots of time, it would not take him long to figure out this deception. But he doesn't. Remember, David has the pressure of immediate departure. Exile can be no patient thing. And two, David fails to talk with Mephibosheth personally. To hear the truthfulness of it with his own ears, to see the truthfulness of the statement on the look of his face as he speaks about it. 
And in fact, in a few chapters, looking ahead at 2 Samuel chapter 19, verses 24 through 30, when David, spoiler alert, comes back to Jerusalem, he asks Mephibosheth to his face, why didn't you come with us? I loved you. You sat at my table. What's going on? And you hear the answer of Mephibosheth. And when you put Ziba's quote next to Mephibosheth's voice, the two are in clear conflict. So who do you trust? The guy who's about to get rich because of his manipulations? Or the man that you have known and loved and shared countless dinners with? But David makes an impulsive decision. And let's be honest, impulsive decisions are not always correct decisions. Sometimes our snap judgments fail us. This is not to say that nothing good can come from spontaneity. Spontaneous choice can be great. But in this case, the stakes are so high and the pressure's so intense David should not be handling the entire wealth of a dynasty and household flippantly. But he does. Listen to David's response to Ziba's lie. The king speaks back and says, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. You may have your master's wealth. And it only cost him a couple of donkeys and some snacks for the road. And Ziba feigns surprise. Oh, I pay homage. Let me revere you, he's saying. Let me ever find favor in your sight. And here's the dagger. Oh, my Lord, the king. One of the things that I despise most of war is obviously the loss of life and the maiming of all of the combatants. But just underneath that, I despise those who seek to use the evil and difficulty of war to make themselves rich. They want to sell the bullets and the band-aids. They don't care who's in charge. Here, Ziba, someone that David has dealt with fairly and kindly, feigns support, even calling him king. But I ask you, who is king in Ziba's heart? He is. This is the nature of greed. The nature of greed is evil because it does not see people as people. It sees them as opportunities. No different than the grifter, the con man, or even the thief. This is polite theft. But it is theft. He is stealing what rightfully has been given to his boss for his own gain. And profiteering off of war is a long and sordid history. 
Talk to your history professors in the room, hey Matt, about how much wealth can change hands during times of war. That's why we call it profiteering. We have a name for this reality. So we see Ziba in open and dishonest rebellion against David and against Yahweh. We will immediately contrast this polite version of rebellion with the obvious, vile, to-your-face vision of rebellion. At least I can say for Shimei, there's nothing phony here. This is a man of loud conviction. The problem is both the volume, perhaps, but also the certitude. He is sure of something that's untrue. And he will attack David with it. Let's hear it in his own voice. Verse 5, when King David came to Barham, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. This is not to say that he's from Boston or New York. This is to say that he is pronouncing covenant curses, the damning curses of covenant life. This is one of the challenges for us in our day, 21st century Americans, as we try and think about the language of the Bible, most of us have to learn what all of them understood implicitly. And that is, all of life was seen through the skeletal lens of blessings and curses. If you do the right thing, you are blessed for doing so. And if you do the wrong thing, you are cursed for doing so. So these were both a state of blessing and a state of cursedness. And also individual little, almost like marbles you would collect. Marbles of blessing and marbles of cursing. All to put in the pouch of your heart. Or to live out in the life that you have. But this is covenant language. He's not cussing. He's cursing. He's saying, David, the curses of unfaithfulness to God be upon your head. In other words, Shemai is very comfortable in saying this rebellion is a judgment from God upon your head. And you are being replaced by your son because of the evil you have done. And the prime accusation here is that he has bled Saul's house. Listen to the language here, verse 6. So here's Shammai throwing stones at David and at all the servants of King David and of all the people and the mighty men. This guy's chucking rocks 
at soldiers. This is like throwing rocks at tanks. We've seen this in human history. And it is the act of defiance at its highest emotional peak. Because rocks don't beat tanks. And people throwing rocks are easily slaughtered. So here's one guy throwing rocks at the mighty men of David as they exit Jerusalem. They're leaving the holy city, and this takes place just a little bit to the east of Jerusalem. And Shimei is cursing. He yells, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. Shimei has a grudge against David. And he is himself from the house of Saul. So he believes, wrongly, but he believes it strongly, that David is guilty for the deaths of Abner and Ishbosheth. Now, if you want to study that this week, you go back to chapters 3 and 4. And you will see David is innocent of this charge. He has not bled the house of Saul. In fact, what leads to the death of Abner and Ishbosheth, David has no knowledge of until after it occurs. But it appears, at least to Shimei and probably many others, that this is a too convenient deniability. It's simply plausible deniability. It's not actual genuine innocence. But we know that Shimei is wrong in his evaluation of this prime charge. It also is important for us to understand that as he is believing that God is punishing David for his sins against Saul's house, it was Saul who was guilty of this. The one in whose honor he's taking up this charge was actually guilty of pursuing the thing that David is innocent of, himself. And these verses are simple to us. He thinks David is wrong. He thinks David is guilty. So he's chucking rocks at him. But he's devoid of compassion and filled with theological judgment. This is no prophet in Israel who speaks for God, but he has the conviction of one who does. He believes that God has avenged on him. This is verse 8. Yahweh has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And Yahweh has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. In other words, you are blood guilty, which is the highest form of guilt in their covenant structure. We must be careful 
of our theological judgments. We must be very careful when we aim to speak of causal relationships to situations. It is easy for us to say, well, the wicked man got justice from God. Even if we ourselves are not a witness nor have access to all the testimony and relevant issues. It is easy for us to see others and make uninformed, ignorant, decisions about them. This is one of the reasons why you won't get hot takes from me. You know those moments that happen in society where you're like, ooh, what does my pastor think? Yeah, your pastor's not gonna tell you what he thinks until juries have weighed and videos have been seen and, and all the documents. Like, I'm the worst person to go to for a hot take. I won't give it. I'm gonna wait for Kevin DeYoung to tell me what I believe. It's probably a little more truth there than I want to admit. And this is true of our church, not just by grace, not just Kevin, but of our denomination as a whole. There is a rigor of study that costs time. And time pressures do not make the best environments for difficult conclusions. Okay? So what's happening here is an ignorant man who feels cut off and cursed himself by the loss of rule in his household is accusing someone who the temporary circumstances appear to indicate is guilty of something. But it is a quick judgment. And this is the warning for us today. Be careful with your quick judgments. David falters in his quick judgment of the truthfulness of Ziba's lie. And Shimei does not have all the facts. He does not weigh the information. He sees what is a clear and convincing avenue of attack. This is our entire political media system right now. He sees a clear line of argument, regardless of its truthfulness, to advance his own interests. This is why, one of the reasons why this moment in time is so dangerous for us. Because real dialogue has given way to the shouting of sound bites based on easily given and easily received thoughts. But your day is filled with complexity, isn't it? Your life is filled with complicated relationships. How are we to boil a single moment or a single person down to one thing? Do you hear me? We must be careful of our own snap judgments and we must honor the significance of our own ignorance. It is okay to say, 
I don't know. Even if you have a suspicion, you can say, I don't know. Even if you think you're forming an opinion, you probably ought to lead with, I don't know. Unless, unless you do know. Unless you do know. And what's the most sturdy basis of knowledge we have? It's scripture. So I'm not going to give you a hot take for a newsreel. I'm not even interested in it. I'm interested in this. I'm interested in the challenge of my profession, which is to say things that will be true a thousand years from now in a way that every one of us can understand today. Forgive me for my failures, but understand that is my North Star. So here you have Shimei arguing about David's guilt, and he's cursing him, and he's throwing rocks at him, but he's filled with no compassion for David or the difficulty of his son taking his throne, but he's filled with theological judgment. Upon what should your theological judgments be based? Say it again. It's from the scripture. So can we have full certainty that there is no other way to heaven than through Jesus Christ? Can we be firm in that theological conviction? Then we must be certain of certain things. And we must be open-handed with its applications. You see the difference? When we make theological judgments, make sure they're God's judgments. And when we make theological opinions, let's honor the fact that these are how we think it works rather than how it does work, unless we're told how it does work. Shimei believes that David is guilty of blood guilt. Is he right? <laughs> no, and yes, I gotcha. Half of you were squirming, I don't know. Some of you were bold, I love it, keep your boldness. Because the answer is yes, David is guilty of blood guilt. But is he guilty of the blood guilt that Shemai is accusing him of? No. So David is receiving covenant curses unjustly, he's not guilty, and justly. Shemai is wrong and right. Is he guilty against bleeding the house of Saul? But is there a house that he has bled? unjustly. Watch how different David experiences this moment from all the people that David is with. He's throwing stones and he cries at the end of verse 8, see your evil is on you. You are a man of blood. David's got some warriors with him and they know a little bit about being men of blood. And he says, this is Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, 
He says to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? I love this. Let me go over and take off his head. Not let me go deal with him, let me go quiet him, let me pull the, the pile of rocks away from him. Let me just take off his head. Spoken like a warrior. Every once in a while, every once in a while, you're reading a commentary and you bust out laughing. Bust out laughing. Because you read great theologians who say things like, people without heads do not curse. This is why you read guys who studied well, because they think about such things. Basically, David is being offered a one-way ticket out of being cursed. Can I just go over and take off his head? People without heads don't curse. What's David's response? What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? It's a little harsh. It's a little. If he is cursing because Yahweh has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? David says to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more Now may this Benjaminite. Do you hear David wrestling with his own guilt? With his own deep understanding of his own heart? If my son can usurp me and seek my head, maybe I'm not the just king I thought I was. And remember what David knows The prophet of God told him that it would be Yahweh who is looking on the wrong that has been done by him. Right? 2 Samuel 12, 11. Behold, says Yahweh, I will raise up trouble against you out of your own house. David is agreeing with Shimei. What is happening to him is the right judgment of God for his blood guilt. It's just not against the house of Saul. And he's not going to squibble with him over the false foundation when the foundation of covenant curses is true. David receives this moment different than everybody else. If he is cursing because Yahweh has said to him, curse David, then I can't interrupt. Verse 11, David says to Abishai, to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. I think it's okay if this Benjaminite does. Leave him alone and let him curse. Not cuss. Curse. For Yahweh has told him to. David's sin 
in David's understanding of what Yahweh is doing and bringing about the consequence of his sin against Bathsheba and the house of Uriah the Hittite, that's what's happening in this exile. David is submitting to the right judgment of God, so don't stop him from cursing me. Everyone around me needs to understand that his basis may be false, but the accusation is true. Yahweh's told him to do it. And then we get to verse 12. Praise God for verse 12. Seriously, praise God for verse 12. David continues his speech. He says, it, it may be that Yahweh will look on the wrong done to me and that Yahweh will repay me with good for his cursing today. Now, I spent a lot of time in verse 12 this week because there's a textual question. And I, I don't want to bring you into this very often, but it's one of the reasons why we stopped here in the text. We're not going to go past 14 today. It's because there's a deep question whether or not this should be translated that Yahweh will look on, quote, the wrong done to me, close quote. Or if it should be, Yahweh will look upon the wrong I have done and that he would repay me with good. So the question here is, is this a statement of affliction? I'm being innocently accused and so God will see my innocence and deal with me according to that in his goodness? Or is David rather, as I think this says looking upon his own iniquity. So is this the wrong being done to David, or is this the wrong that David has done? I think it's the latter. I think it's the latter. And this is why it's important. It's important because David begins with perhaps. This is an imaginative thought. This is not a declaration this is not a theological judgment. David is asking a holy wonderance. It may be. It might be. If this is about David's affliction, he doesn't need the question. It can be a statement. I'm innocent. Shammai's accusing me. Let God see the accusation, know the truth of it, and he can just deal good with me. There's nothing controversial about that. So there's no perhaps required. But if, on the other hand, David is instructing his people, and therefore us, that God's mercy is greater than they can guess at. See, I think David in this whole process is experiencing an understanding of the nature and character of God that is much easier for us to understand having had Christ come. I think David is smelling out the sweet aroma of God's mercy. I think David is saying, this is a judgment that I deserve 
for the sin I've committed. But I know a little something about the God who looks at my guilt and returns good to me. I think this is the gospel in fragrant form. I think what's happening here is that David knows his guilt. Remember, he's the one who penned Psalm 51 verse 14. In a cry out to God, he says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Righteousness? Because he knows David's guilty. David knows he's guilty. Not everybody in the party might know he's guilty, and Shimei might think he's guilty of something he's innocent for, but that doesn't matter. This exile is a consequence of David's sin. But I think David knows it's going to be temporary. Because God had long promised that his household, the dynasty of his name, will last forever. I think David is beholding his own guilt here in verse 12. I think David is saying, it may be that Yahweh will look on the wrong I have done and that Yahweh will repay me with good for this cursing today. David is yielding to the judgment of God, but it's a hopeful yielding. David doesn't think this is going to be permanent. Listen to what follows. Verse 13. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. When he ran out of rocks, he threw sand. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. And there he refreshed himself. I have a very simple question for y'all this morning. Do you believe that the righteous God of heaven sees your guiltiness? Understands it thoroughly, no part hidden, no element escaped, and does good to you? He sees all your unworthiness. He sees all your crimes. He sees all your rebellions, all your thefts, all your greeds, all your lusts. He sees them all, weighs them all, knows them all, and does good to you. On what basis? Jesus Christ, the righteous life and the atoning death of Christ as validated and vindicated on the first Sunday Easter morning. We live in Christ. We have Christ's righteousness. We are guiltless before the throne of God despite being guilty in our hearts, minds, and lives. Only because of the grace of God. Only because of the mercy of God. My Connect kids studied a couple weeks back. What is the proper definition of grace? And we agreed together that we were going to use J.I. Packer's definition of grace. Grace at its fundamental basis is mercy 
contrary to merit. We've earned the opposite of goodness. We've received and earned curses according to the covenant structure and language of the Bible. But we receive freedom, vindication, joy, life when we deserve death, eternal heaven when we deserve eternal hell. Condemnation taken by Christ, eternal vindication given by that same Christ for you, for your good. I think David has an unimaginable joy in the, in the midst of an unimaginable difficulty that God has him square in the palm of his hand and he will take him out of Jerusalem and he will bring him back. And David believes, as I hope we believe, that God is free to do with us whatever he wants. And it will be for his glory and it'll be for our benefit. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we freely confess the wrongs that we have done. We joyfully admit our need for your mercy and grace. Father, come in the face of our guilt, come in the face of our helplessness and pour out your goodness upon us. Show us the wisdom of your judgments and forgive us for the hastiness of ours or the error of ours. Yahweh, look upon our iniquity and return good to us. By the name of Jesus Christ and solely by his name we ask. And all God's people agree. Before we sing, I want you to hear, I want you to hear the prophet Isaiah three centuries later say this. Come now, let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. God returns good to you, even when your sins are red like scarlet. Amen.